When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. Genesis reaches an agreement with Gemini, Binance suspends bank transfers in U.S. dollars, and the U.K. moves ahead with a digital pound. Welcome back to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. My name is Mark Oliveira. I'm joined by my co-host, Ash Bennington. What's going on, Ash? Hey, Marco. Great to be here with you again today. Yeah, great. Always great to be with you, Ash. Uh, we also have Piers Ridyard from Radix later in the show. We'll talk about how Radix aims to make DeFi a better user experience. How's it going, Piers? It's very good. Great to be on the show. Yeah, we're excited to have you. We're looking forward to that for the viewers. Stay tuned. That's going to be a little bit later in this segment. For now, let's look at the latest price analysis. Bitcoin is virtually unchanged on a 24-hour basis. This comes after a five-day losing streak. Bitcoin is currently trading at around 23000 It's down slightly on a weekly basis. Investors are awaiting comments from Jay Powell. We're expecting his speech in a few hours. Ash, how's Ethereum looking? Well, Marco, Ether is pretty much in line with Bitcoin today. Ether is trading, uh, trading a little change on a 24-hour basis, currently trading at just over $1,600. Unlike Bitcoin, though, Ether is up on a trailing seven-day basis. According to a report by CoinShares, investor sentiment continues to improve. Digital asset investment products saw net inflows of $76 million last week. That's a fourth consecutive week of net inflows. CoinShares says most of that has gone into Bitcoin, with Grayscale being the biggest beneficiary. Marco, what's our biggest performer today? Well, that's the graph, uh, ticker symbol GRT. It's up more than 30% on a 24-hour basis and nearly 100% for the past week. The graph is an indexing protocol. Coindesk says the ecosystem has seen big growth lately. Let's look on uh, at about our top story here today. Bankrupt crypto lender Genesis has reached an agreement with its main creditor, including uh, main creditors, including crypto exchange Gemini. The announcement was confirmed by Gemini co-founder Cameron Winklevoss, who tweeted that the plan provides a path for Earn users to recover their assets. Earn was Gemini's yield earning program set up in partnership with Genesis. However, when Genesis halted redemptions and then filed for bankruptcy, millions of Gemini Earn user funds became locked. Ash, I know you've been following this story since the beginning. What's your take on this development? Well, you know, first of all, the most important point to point out is that this still requires judicial approval. This is going through a bankruptcy court. Uh, so the fact that the the, the uh, creditor has agreed is not necessarily, uh, does not make it a done deal, let's just say. I guess my question here is whether other creditors might object uh, to this. We don't know. Uh, so it's something that's out there right now. Uh, Cameron Winklevoss said Gemini will contribute up to $100 million extra to earn users as part of the plan. But again, just to point out, not yet a done deal until there's judicial approval, Marco. Yeah, not a done deal until there's judicial approval. I mean, I think the big <clears throat> question looming, Ash, on everyone's mind is where's DCG, which is Genesis' parent company, going to find the money to sort the situation at Genesis out? What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's a great question. In fact, it's the key question. I wanted you to just quote here uh, from the Financial Times. Crypto conglomerate Digital Currency Group has begun to sell shares in several of its most prized cryptocurrency funds at a steep discount as it seeks to raise capital to pay creditors back uh, from its of its bankruptcy lending arm. Uh, one would think that's not something that GBTC, uh, excuse me, that's not something that uh, DCG 
would love to do. Obviously, uh, some of these assets, including GBTC, I know everything sounds alike here. The initials sound similar. The company name sounds similar. It's confusing. Uh, but look, I, I just wanted to show this chart really quick. This is the GBTC net asset value discount chart. This chart that you're looking at now on the screen uh, shows the discount uh, between the net asset value price uh, of the underlying Bitcoin of GBTC and the market price. As you can see, there's a little leg down there uh, on the right. Uh, obviously, this showing uh, an, an increasing uh, selling pressure uh, as folks believe that uh, they just want to pay less for those underlying assets because of the challenges. You know, again, this is not a situation that DCGC would like to find itself in, uh, but it is here and, and to the reporting in the FT, they're attempting uh, to raise money uh, according to the FT by doing just that, by selling some of those assets, Marco. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's probably another contingent of people that think that they're getting a great deal uh, by by being able to buy those GBTC shares much cheaper than when you'd buy for a spot uh, piece of Bitcoin. Well, that's what makes a market, right? You've got buyers and sellers that are two sides of the transaction, and that's what makes it interesting, uh, and that's why we like following them. Absolutely. Well, moving on to this next story that we got here, uh, Binance was trending on Twitter earlier, and here's why. So starting tomorrow, Binance, the world's largest crypto exchange, is going to suspend bank transfers in U.S. dollars. Although this news sounds bad, the change won't affect many people. It's only going to affect Binance.com users, not Binance US, which is a separate entity. Binance CEO CZ says the change will only impact about 0.01% of its monthly active users. In a follow-up tweet, CZ suggests the issue is a Binance banking partner withdrawing support. So, Ash, this is clearly a setback for Binance, but the the impact is relatively small. I mean, we're talking about 0.01% of its monthly active users. Do you think, though, that this speaks of, to a larger issue of banks withdrawing support from crypto? Well, you know, a couple of points here. First, it's not a surprise. This was telegraphed in advance. This was something that we knew uh, was coming. Uh, look, every time someone mentions this story, they say it sounds bad, but it's not really a big deal. Uh, that is the sort of received opinion about this. I guess, you know, my sort of skepticism is the, the question that you just asked, and it is an open question. We don't know the answer to it. Does this represent a broader trend uh, of banks uh, withdrawing support for digital assets in general or for Binance uh, in particular? We don't know the answer to that question yet. That is the received opinion on it, that it isn't a big deal, uh, but we just don't know. And uh, it's something we're going to keep watching. By the way, I just wanted to read this quote from CZ. Uh, it is worth noting that USD bank transfers are leveraged by only 0.01% of our monthly active users. This was the point you made earlier. However, we appreciate this that this is still a bad user experience and the team is working on quickly resolving this issue. So there is an admission there. Obviously, this is not uh, a great experience for the users. By the way, let me just throw this out with a, with a skeptic's hat on talking about open questions uh, and something that we truly just don't know the answer to. This idea that it's 0.01% of monthly active users, is that the same as dollar volume? It's not necessarily the same as dollar volume. I can tell you that. Uh, so whether or not this represents a higher percentage of the dollar volume. Uh, that is an open question, and it's going to be an interesting one. We're going to follow the story. Look, we can't read too much into it. Uh, it's still early. We don't know the facts, but we're going to keep watching uh, to make sure that those facts come out and that our viewers and listeners can hear them. Yeah, that's definitely something we have to wait for the facts. I mean, obviously, there's always speculation going on anytime that there's stuff going on with Binance. Uh, there, especially it, it, on Twitter, it's, speculation is especially rampant when it comes to Binance as of late, Ash. Right, and and that's what we try not to engage in here. Uh, Real Vision is rampant speculation. We go through the facts, uh, we give some opinion, we give some analysis, uh, but we're just going to have to wait and see as this story plays out because it's still very much a fluid situation, as the saying goes, Marco. Yeah. Well, we have a couple updates here from the UK as well. So Decrypt reports the UK is laying the groundwork for the launch of a digital pound, which is dubbed Britcoin, uh, which could be used, which could be in use by the late 2020s. The Bank of England and the Treasury have formed a joint task force and launch public consultations to consider the, the design and implementation of the currency until June 7th. So, Ash, it seems like the race to launch CBDC's central bank digital currencies is well underway across major economies. What's your take here? Well, my take, big picture, top line, is that central bank digital currencies are one of the largest open questions, one of the largest wildcard issues that we have out there in the space right now. Uh, if we do get major developed market economies adopting CBDCs, it changes uh, the, the very sort of nature and structure 
of the digital asset ecosystem, particularly, as you might imagine, uh, of course, stable coins. But more broadly than that, it's going to have a very large impact. Uh, you know, we know that the UK is moving ahead with digital asset regulation, attempting to harmonize their traditional capital markets, uh, sort of regulatory uh, and legislative framework uh, to include digital assets. This seems to me to be part and parcel of it. It would be just an enormous uh, step. As you pointed out, you said it exactly right, Marco. There are still some issues to sort out here, design issues, uh, including privacy specifically. Uh, according to Andrew Bailey specifically, who is the governor of the Bank of England, actually mentions uh, the issue of understanding the privacy implications of it. Uh, that's per decrypt. Uh, in the article that we've been uh, that we showed on screen there uh, a moment ago, talking of decrypt, I wanted to show I want to read rather this quote uh, quote under the current plans, neither the government nor the Bank of England would have access to personal data. The private sector would handle access to the currency through digital wallets and would and there would be initial restrictions on how much an individual or businesses could hold. So two pretty striking things about that report from Decrypt. Number one, uh, the idea of limits on holdings uh, for individuals as well as businesses. Uh, by the way, per the Decrypt article, they say that this is just an initial restriction. How long those uh, restrictions remain in place, I guess, remains an open question. But it does sort of tell you something about the, the challenges in, of implementing something like this. The second thing that's interesting to me is this idea of a two-tiered system. Essentially, you have a central bank digital currency with some private sector involvement in terms of the wallets and how those transactions are processed. You know, in many ways, this mirrors what we currently have in the United States and in England as well, uh, in the UK more broadly, which is this two-tiered banking system. You have a central banking system, uh, the central bank that obviously monitors uh, and, uh, and, and does mo direct monetary policy, which has clear macroeconomic implications, specifically solving for the two key variables in macroeconomics that uh, central bankers and policymakers are interested in, which are, of course, uh, the growth of the economy, uh, which is uh, directly tied to the to the labor markets, the full employment uh, directive, and then, uh, of course, price stability, dealing with inflation or deflation in the case of uh, significant recession. Uh, so this is, uh, this is obviously a very complicated uh, type of thing to work out to figure out how you get the public-private sector balance correct. And it is interesting. There's almost this thought of a kind of layers of execution here. So you have a, a central bank issuing the currency, and yet you have a Retail banks, commercial banks, uh, is sort of engaged in the in the wallet component of it, processing transactions. I think it's going to take them a while to get this sorted out, even for a pilot project. But I have to tell you, Marco, it's a really interesting thing to watch. It definitely is an interesting thing to watch. Maybe some people out there might be uh, a bit cautious about that. So there was a positive thing that I saw in that story that I think came from uh, Jeremy Hunt, the UK's chief financial minister. He said, cash is here to stay in one of his statements here as he was talking about the digital pound. So for the people out there that uh, aren't very uh, pro stable coin, pro CBDCs, looks like they'll still have the option to use cash. Yeah, that certainly sounds that way based on the article. Yeah. Well, so I have another interesting story out of the UK. According to an exclusive report by AltFi, challenger bank Revolut is now offering crypto staking. The service is available to, uh, to customers in the UK and the European uh, economic area. It supports staking of Polkadot, Tezos, Cardano, and Ethereum. Yields range from 3% to 11.65%. But obviously, you know, anytime we're talking about staking, nothing is guaranteed. Crypto staking, for people who don't know, means you're lending out your assets for a certain period of time, and it helps secure the blockchain, and you earn rewards in return. So, Ash, we've been hearing a lot about staking since Ethereum's move to proof-of-stake. Obviously, this is uh, staking. Uh, could be slightly different, obviously, because it's on a centralized exchange it could be, or a centralized uh, uh, platform there. But what are your thoughts on this? Well, I wanted to talk just a little bit more generally about the structure of this. Uh, so you mentioned uh, this phrase, challenger bank. It's sometimes called a neobank. Uh, this idea that these are sort of uh, these hybrid financial institutions that are kind of software development companies, but they're also quasi-banks. You know, to, to point to Revolut in particular, it's not a bank. It's not regulated like a bank. Uh, there was a story back in December that BBC ran that got a lot of pickup in the UK about a victim of fraud, a, a woman who uh, had an account with Revolut who's in a victim of fraud, unrelated to Revolut, uh, but she was fraudulently defrauded of, of some of her her funds. Uh, and uh, and Revolut ref essentially refused to refund uh, those defrauded uh, funds. 
So, you know, look, the reality is if you have, uh, you know, uh, you're an ATM uh, card that you're using with uh, with Chase or someone else, a large bank here in the United States, and you're a victim of fraud or a credit card, you get those funds back. The bank uh, takes responsibility for it. It's part of the reason why they're able to charge us fees. Uh, the reality is this is an open question about how this works. And look, by the way, uh, we've obviously seen some of the risks and dangers of staking with uh, with Voyager, with Celsius, uh, and with others here in the U.S. I'm not trying to be negative about it. Uh, this is just the, the reality uh, of the world that we find ourselves in. These are, are sort of centralized platforms. They're not truly decentralized. I'm sure Piers will have some stuff to add about this when he comes on the show uh, about this dichotomy. Uh, but the reality is that there is clearly risk in, in, in the system. It's also interesting to me, uh, this idea, of, and, I, and I sort of touched on it in a different context with the BOE, the Bank of England, in the prior story, that you have this kind of stack of layers of execution. One of the challenges that we see in the system uh, is problems with UI, UX, that's user interface, user experience. Uh, these systems are not the kind of uh, thing that uh, that folks who don't have master's degrees in computer science are generally comfortable with. Uh, and you see this this desire, this demand uh, for people who are going to, uh, you know, intermediate that, put layers in between it so you make it easier, so you have a, a more traditional experience. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, you know, generally find going up to my bank's website pretty easy. Uh, it's easy to see where my balances. It's easy to understand how much uh, and when I have to pay my credit card. I mean, these kinds of things are the, the user interface component uh, has been has been dramatically simplified so that just about everyone uses them here in the U.S. Uh, and uh, and uh, throughout the developed world today. Um, these are challenges right now that we still have in the DeFi space. And by the way, there are other challenges. We'll probably talk about those with peers as well in terms of security, uh, bridges. There's lots of challenges in this space. It's incredibly early. It's incredibly exciting. Uh, that's why we have uh, so much interest in this space. Obviously, uh, we see this idea of programmable money, uh, which is something that folks who have backgrounds in computer science, folks who have backgrounds uh, in uh, in uh, finance uh, and banking are incredibly excited about. We talked yesterday with the Starkware folks about the abstraction of accounts. These are incredibly, incredibly interesting uh, topics and things that we're going to see roll out in the next one, three, five, ten years. Uh, and I suspect it's going to change the way we do just about everything, not just banking, uh, but commerce more broadly, uh, social media, Web3 applications. It's an incredibly exciting time, but we do have to say, uh, obviously, uh, it is very early and there are risks, Marco. Yeah, there's obviously risk, and who better to talk about that than Piers? We're going to get to him in a second. But first, I want to remind the viewers to join in on the conversation. Put down your questions in the chat. Wherever you're watching, we're going to ask the best ones later in the show today. Remember, Real Vision members take priority, but the good news is membership is free. You can head over to realvision.com forward slash crypto and sign up. With that said, let's bring in our guest, Piers Ridyard, the CEO of Radix, which calls itself Radically Different DeFi. Welcome to the show, Piers. You're, thank you very much. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Well, Ash, I'm going to be back uh, with some other news stories in a bit, but take it away. Thanks, Marco. Uh, Piers, welcome to the show. Hey, yeah, good. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. First, tell us about Radix. What is it? What's the use case? What problems are you looking to solve? And of course, the question everyone wants to know, why does the world need another layer one protocol? Yeah, no, this is a great question. So Radix is a public decentralized ledger entirely focused on creating incredible user experiences for DeFi builders and users. And the reason we want to do this is we believe, I think like you guys do as well, that decentralized finance is inevitable. It is going to eat the entire world of global finance. However, it's not, it's not a question of if, but when. But the user experience today of crypto sucks. You get hacks, you get exploits, you get you get congestion. And then if people are escaping that, which I think what a lot of these things are, like Revolut offering staking or FTX offering yield or, or Celsius offering yield, you end up with the centralized problem again. And so all of this makes crypto hard, actually using crypto directly hard, and it keeps the industry niche. So Radix is 100% focused on changing that. And the technology stack that we've built to solve these problems goes live in Q2 of this year. So let me ask you this. Yeah, go for it. No, I was just going to ask you, Piers, in, in terms of the way that you think about it, it's essentially a, a kind of a, a, a flexible layer one protocol, at least based on what I've read and heard you speak about, uh, a layer one protocol that is essentially uh, the aim is to optimize it, particularly for DeFi applications. Talk a little bit about uh, why you see an advantage there, how you're implementing that from a technology stack perspective, and also compare and contrast it a little bit uh, to something like Ethereum, obviously a, a, a very widely known layer one protocol. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's two things that you need to understand about the Radix stack. The first is if you want to, 
everything that we do on top of public ledgers inside of decentralized finance is all about assets and ownership of assets. But public ledgers like Ethereum, like Solana, like Avalanche, like any any anyone that you care to mention, the assets aren't a native function of the ledger. Like you have to program the concept into ass of assets every time, which means that all of the interfaces aren't standardized. So like a simple example, I have a token in my wallet. I don't actually have a token in my wallet. The wallet is just a pointer to an address on the ledger. And the ledger has no idea what it means to transfer one token from one address to another. That's a little computer program. Now, all of that sounds very abstract and, 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 and it doesn't really come down to the user experience immediately, obviously. But if you make assets native to the ledger, that means that everything that interacts with them understands that they're interacting with assets. So now on Radix, if I open up my wallet, I can see that my assets are in my wallet, then they are actually in my wallet. They're not a pointer. And the assets tell me what I can do with them. They tell me if they're recallable. They tell me if they're freezable. They tell me if I can re redeem them for whatever I'm investing in an LP program. And more how, does, how does that work, Piers? Because it's really interesting to me. Uh, you mentioned, and I think the traditional understanding is that wallets are just a mechanism for seeing the pointer to the distributed ledger. Uh, tell us how it would be different under the model of Radix. Yeah, so the way that you, I normally describe it is um, when in the early days when the games industry, the computer games industry was first getting started, the, uh, the it was a cottage industry and you got like incredible prolific developers like John Carmack who created Doom. But only a few people could do it because John Carmack had to actually build everything from scratch. He had to build the rendering engines. He had to build the physics engines. He had to build how the levels work and all of the artwork and how that then rendered on every single device. And it, it took the invention of an engine, in this case, the games engine, to allow the computer games industry to go from a cottage industry to the biggest entertainment industry in the world. And what the games engine did is it went, look, there's a bunch of things that are standard about building games right? There are physics, there is rendering, there is per, uh, per ledger, sorry, per uh, platform implementation. And what that did is it allowed easier development and easier and better user experiences of games. It meant games could be bigger and more complex. What Radix has got underneath our programming language and on the ledger is something called the Radix engine. And the Radix engine is like a game engine for finance. It basically gives you all of these primitives directly. Now the wallet is still an interface, but now it's interfacing with a ledger where the, where the things that you expect to be dealing with, like assets, like permissions, like accounts, like the ability to do recovery they're all just they're all the features of the underlying ledger so you don't have competing standards and you don't have to worry about whether or not this wallet or that asset will work with that dap or this asset will be able to be viewed in that wallet it all happens completely by standard so you take away all of the difficulty bits of creating standardized formats for things in code and abstract level but then for a computer programmer and for a user you end up with incredibly intuitive programming languages and incredibly intuitive user experiences. So your account on Radix is actually an account. It isn't just a pointer, but it's a, it's a full smart contract that when you send tokens from one account to another, those tokens actually move to that account and the ledger is saying, okay, keeping a, uh, uh, the entry of these tokens, I know that peers, this account, that's peers' account, owns these tokens. Not that there is a sub function on the ledger going okay i'm going to keep a, a you know all of the addresses and all of the internal balances of this erc20 contract but this erc20 contract over here was actually a scam one but uses the same interfaces can mean that if someone puts those tokens in their wallet the person who created that contract is able to steal all of the tokens you can't do any of that on radix because all of these are native functions and features so the wallet leverages all of these features and creates this incredibly intuitive user experience. But the real power comes from this Radix engine, the thing that allows you to have all of these standard functions and features it directly built into the ledger itself. Hey everyone, we're gonna take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear, check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's, it's a really interesting concept, a really interesting conversation. First, uh, you mentioned the gaming industry is bigger than film and bigger than music. I know a lot of people over 40 probably don't realize that. Uh, right. But as global industries, it's just absolutely massive. Second point, uh, you talk about this idea of uh, what's generally termed abstraction layers, the idea that you can basically build layers of software on top of each other to integrate things. It's, it's the reason that we have the internet. Uh, it's the reason we're able to have this conversation right now uh, You know, on a very inexpensive equipment over standard uh, internet connections. And that's what really has uh, been advancing uh, decade after decade and that got to a place uh, where we could have things like Bitcoin uh, and Ethereum and other protocols. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned this idea of building this engine uh, as an abstraction layer so that you have the ability to do logic and then to you know, almost I'm sort of reminded of the way that Steve Jobs talked about the integration between hardware and software. Yes. When you talk about the integration between the engine and the wallet and the functionality uh, that you can uh, that you can essentially uh, you can essentially call uh, through that integrated system. Give us some examples, uh, Piers, about what that might look like in the real world, some functionality uh, from an end user perspective that the Radix engine uh, would uh, enable uh, when it goes live uh, per your roadmap. Sure, and, and you're, you're absolutely right. Just a point on that, right? The job of a protocol is to commoditize everything that everyone wants as standard so that the job of the people who are building on it is only to innovate for the things that their customers care about, not to have to build anything other than that. And the full stack approach is very much of the Apple approach. We've gone from consensus to the execution environment, to the programming language, to the wallet, to create this full stack approach that as an end user means that you get this magically delicious user experience. To give you a concrete example, Kevin Rose got $1.4 million worth of his NFTs stolen from him. The reason that he got them stolen is because he was trying to transfer a bunch of NFTs simultaneously. What happened is it came up and it said, would you like to approve this transaction? And because it was a complex transaction, dealing with multiple smart contracts, it just came up as a, as a hash. It, it's, and this is called blind signing in MetaMask. And it's incredibly common. It's the most common way in which you approve any interaction on Ethereum or basically any other ledger as well. And I compare this to like uh, a website, a e-commerce website, not having a shopping cart. All you can do is you can go, I want to buy all of these things. You go add to cart, add to cart, add to cart, but then you go, have to just press pay. You have no way of reviewing what was at, what you're actually about to do. And as a result of not being able to review the action, he then signed on a hardware wallet and submitted to the ledger. Someone was able to give, was able to put a different command in place that he was unable to be able to work out that it was different. And then for, and then he signed it thinking that it was a correct command and actually $1.4 million of his NFTs were stolen. On Radix, we have this concept called the transaction manifest. And the transaction manifest is like adding a shopping cart back onto public ledgers. Now the transaction manifest is a human readable list of all of the actions you're about to ask the ledger to do. And because assets are native features and accounts are native features and interfaces to dApps are native features, it doesn't matter how many dApps you're calling, how many assets you're asking to do, how complex the number of steps are. You can literally say, I want to take this asset out of my wallet, put it into that DEX, take the result of that out, put that into a lending platform, take the result of that out, and then put that into my wallet, right? And do that. And, and what you would see in the human readable transaction manifest is every single one of those steps, what you're going to get as assets in, what you expect to get as assets out, which dApps you're interacting with, and you sign it. And when you press approve, there is no way of getting in between that. And that is the crux of why people are not adopting crypto. In my opinion, the user experience of why people are not actually going and using MetaMask and, and using those wallets and instead going to intermediaries like Celsius is because they're so excited by the opportunity, but they're terrified by these user experience journeys that make it basically impossible for them to understand. And like you click that sign, you have no, no idea. And then you've got to wait for like five minutes in terror as to whether or not it happens and that gut-wrenching soul draining time and on radix that goes completely <clears throat> with 
things like the transaction manifest that's only possible as a result of the full stack approach. Yeah, I think that's very well explained, Piers, because oftentimes I think when we talk about this language that sounds, uh, you know, like something out of a, a computer program, uh, UI, UX, uh, user journeys, uh, right. it, sometimes it can sound to people like uh, what we're talking about is like, no, it's the shade of blue is ugly. It should really be purple. Like, no, this is really fundamental to the functionality. Yeah. Uh, it essentially is an incredible opacity, a lack of transaction. Uh, transparency of what's happening. And obviously Kevin Rowe is a very sophisticated individual in the space. And when you right. read a story like that, I think it's very uh, natural for people to have the reaction as, boy, if this could happen to Kevin Rose, what chance do I stand? Uh, and I think that is is something that's important to mention. Uh, talking about things that are important to mention, I also wanted to take a look uh, at the charts to talk about price performance here. If we bring up the Radix chart, this is XRD. I think we're looking at coin market cap here. Uh, yep. First, I wanted to show the one year chart. Uh, and then after that, uh, if we could show uh, the total chart, the all chart, uh, obviously, Piers, it's not a it's not a pretty chart uh, for <laughs> investors are not happy about this. Uh, would you would you be able to comment on this at all uh, for people who listen to this conversation uh, and they look at that chart and they 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 just see the the absolute devastation uh, in terms of price? Sure. Um, obviously, we don't comment on price. But what I can talk about is the things that we look at, which is nothing to do with price. The things we look at is what I would call healthy growth. What are the things that actually matter for the long term success of a public ledger? And the things that matter are things like developer um, uptake. Right. So since we launched our programming language, Scripto, specifically built for DeFi and Web3, we've gone from zero to over 7,300 developers trying our programming language and building with it in our community. And we're seeing increasing week on week activity in our developer channels. We've seen, we saw like three, 300 or 400 uh, new developers each week for the last couple of weeks. And we're seeing the trend of people going from just discussing about, hey, this is a cool programming language to being like, okay, now I see the advantage that we get for building on Radix. We're going to focus on building on the public ledger. Now, Radix took the unusual decision to launch our public ledger before smart contracts went onto it. So our, our public ledger went, went live. And because we're building the entire stack, we started with the consensus algorithm and the Radix engine to make sure that that was tested before we added in the programming language for smart contracts and the user experience for the end user. And there's an and there's an 18 month gap between those two things because A, we wanted to build the security of the network and decentralize the uh, staking of the network, decentralize this token holding of the network. And B, we wanted to test and iterate our programming language and our state model before we put it live. Because one of the things that Vitalik from Ethereum always talks about is like, uh, we put Solidity live too early. We wish that we could have changed some simple things about it that have mm. caused massive amounts of complexity later because it is like shipping hardware. You ship this piece of public ledger code, your, your need to retain state and keep money secure outweighs everything else. So the ability to then iterate beyond that becomes very hard. So we took it the, the, the strong decision of separating out the two launches and spending 18 months working with our developer community and getting the feedback that was necessary to make sure that when the public ledger went live, we had really nailed the programming experience and the state model for long-term success of the public ledger. And that's what's coming in Q2 of this year. And that's what we care about. We, we, we focus on that. And if you, I, I, I challenge anyone to come into our developer community channels, they're all open on Discord and find a more enthusiastic and more serious developer community around the programming language anywhere else in crypto. Piers, you talk about the tech side of this like you are very much a native of that land, but you actually have a very interesting background. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you did uh, about your educational background before you got into this space. Yeah, I've, I'm sort of like a mutt of education. Like, like it's the, it's the uh, less nice way of saying polymath, I think. I think polymath is probably a loaded term. I, um, I, I originally went to university to do aerospace engineering. Um, but I uh, was spent most of my first year launching my own businesses. They're all like silly businesses, but I was like, I clearly want to do business more than I want to do engineering. So I changed my degree to uh, Chinese and business because I was like, I don't want to just get a business degree. I should probably get something else as well. <laughs> uh, and then. Um, so are you, are you I, fluent in Mandarin? 
yeah so like rusty i went and lived there for a year and a half and i lived with Chi- like i didn't hang out with the foreigners i li- went and lived with chinese people uh in like the chinese dorms and ch- with chinese students and it was hard but it was great and i but i haven't practiced a lot recently um and then after you know and then in my final year of university i did my cfa as well at the same time as doing my final um uh year of university because i thought that finance was an interesting area um, and then I had a job uh, to go and work in uh, law. Uh, Linklater's um, put me through uh, law school and I went and did my GDL and my LPC. Um, and then I accidentally... For an American made... audience, GDL and LPC. Yeah, so great... Uh, a graduate diploma of law and legal practitioner certificate. These are the two things you need to be able to be a practicing lawyer. Um, but I, uh, at, while I was doing my law school, I created another company that ended up being an incredibly successful one, uh, which was called Nifty. And that was a consumer electronics device company. Yeah, it was at the time the highest funded UK tech Kickstarter project ever. And, um, and so I was like, I can't be a lawyer. I have to go and ship 15,000 units of this product around the world and set up an assembly line in China. So I flew to China and did that. And then, uh, you know, I set that, I got that business running to about a million dollar run rate um, per annum. And uh, my friend approached me and said, Hey, you know about engineering and uh, electronics. I want to build some Ethereum mining rigs. Um, There's this new thing called Ethereum, this new cryptocurrency called Ethereum. I want to I want to start mining it when it goes live and I was like okay what's cryptocurrency and what's mining and that was my that was my starting point was building cryptocurrency mining rigs and it all went mm. from there but the thing that I think's really fascinating is that I did each of these things that felt like completely separate things, right? Like finance, law, like engineering, computer, um, consumer, consumer electronics or electronics. And suddenly it all came together in crypto. And I was like, man, this is, this is like, this is my space. It, it's all of the things that I love, like everything from like mathematics and game theory up to like regulation and, and, and all of the like weird kinks that come into it as a result of that through to through to like the financial aspects the financial products that are being built on top of it so no i'm not a computer programmer um i've just spent a long time building tech in different ways uh and uh and i feel that um this is my like my my special place like crypto just makes me happy for so many reasons so law degree uh mandarin speaker Chartered financial analyst background in aeronautical engineering. Uh, as General Allenby said to T.E. Lawrence and Lawrence of Arabia, you're an interesting man, no doubt about it. Uh, obviously, it gives you an interesting perspective on the space, and it's, it's fun to have you on to have these uh, conversations. Talking of which, I wanted to bring in Marco, uh, who has some additional news flow on the DeFi side uh, that we'd love to get your view on. Sure. Yeah, that was definitely a, an exciting uh, background for peers. And so, you know, as we're talking about DeFi, um, these are some stories related to DeFi apps. Uh, so Decrypt reports interesting data about the lending protocol Aave. Its latest upgrade, V3, launched earlier this month. It lists eight assets and has captured around $147 million in value. Aave CEO Stanny Kulichev says the upgrade has security at its core. One of the features includes the ability to access liquid staking derivatives. Mm. The next story here is uh, MakerDAO. So according to the Defiant, uh, the second largest DeFi platform, MakerDAO, managed to turn out a profit last year. That's despite a nearly 80% drop in operating earnings. Given the backdrop of a brutal crypto winter, that's definitely good to see. And finally, the story we covered yesterday, the same image of a fist bump and the word Monday appearing on many Twitter accounts of several DeFi platforms. Turns out it was a coordinated action to raise awareness about DeFi. Uh, Benzinga says more than 30 DeFi protocols shared their peers' tweets to showcase the permissionless nature of DeFi. Obviously, this is something that I think is in, is interesting. A lot of pe- a lot of speculation going on. What are your thoughts, at, uh, Ash and, and, and peers? Here's jump in. Lots of news. Sure. There. This is okay, your space. So, you're a native. So it's, 
Yeah, absolutely. So Aave, I think, is a necessary, a necessary upgrade. The V3 has been coming for a long time, but this ability to be able to silo or segment risk away from each other and also be, then be able to go, OK, well, as a result of being able to silo this, because one of the big problems with Aave is contagion risk. If you have a basket of assets where I can deposit any asset as collateral and withdraw any other asset as collateral, you've got to you've got to manage the volatility pairs between each of those. And you have if you have one bad asset in there, you basically create a drain on all of the other assets. So then being able to silo risk and saying, OK, well, what we're going to do is for these higher risk assets, we're going to uh, contain the risk in what they can borrow. And or and that only gives one volatility um, side that you have to worry about because they're only able to borrow in stablecoin and this is going to mean that Aave is actually going to be able to offer a lot more assets for lending and borrowing um, and I also think this is going to be a really big part of their overriding strategy to, to release GHO their stablecoin this this is going to be another way in which they can find ways of printing uh, money against collateral that gives them the ability to grow much more quickly without having to get um, uh, depositors of externally of exogenous stable coins like USDC or USDT. These are actually related, like MakerDAO is related to this. The reason that MakerDAO has made a profit is because of its ability to print stable coins against collateral. Like, so um, being able to make a profit on real world assets is because they can inherently print their own money. So if someone comes along and says, okay, um, I've got uh, $20 million um, of uh, loans on the book, and I have this and I have this risk profile and I'll take first risk basis on it and wh whatever. The risk for MakerDAO is just whether or not those assets are good. But if they believe they are and they have a good risk pro uh, profile for doing that, a good way of weighting the risk, and they pay attention to the circulating supply of DAI and make sure that there's not too much sell pressure around the DAI, because what a lot of these people are going to be doing is selling the DAI so that they can get USD, US dollars, right? Um, then they have this ability basically to become a bank. They're a quasi lending institution that can print money. And that's why they're able to make a profit. And it's an incredibly good business model that they're going to be able to keep rolling out and, and, and get more mature at. Here's um, and as someone who's a, a veteran of, of covering the 2007-2008 era, uh, you know, it, it seems as though the, the potential risk factor or the, the, the sort of the piece of that stack yep. that generates the risk is the, is the underwriting component, the assessment yep. of whether or not, uh, you know, at, at what level you essentially value those assets. And the other yep. point, uh, and you mentioned just this uh, at the top of your answer there, is the risk of contagion uh, where yep. you see a, a generalized uh, move from risk assets into uh, into uh, into higher value assets uh, into a flight to quality as the term in the industry is. Uh, talk a little bit about those two components uh, of that risk stack. Yeah, so that's exactly right. As soon as you start going into the real world asset stack, you start to have you have to deal with real world risks, and you're you're now moving into having to do risk modeling around those assets. Yeah. And as with all modeling, as you know, what your underlying assumptions are about the economic outlook of those assets have a massively important uh, aspect to them. Now, I actually don't think this is the end state yet. I think the next thing that's going to happen is that credit default swaps are going to be invented for real world assets on top of public ledgers. And then, then I think the real risk starts to come in because right now, MakerDAO Risk Committee is making the decision on the real world assets. What's actually likely to happen, I think, is that you're going to have credit default swaps against basket of real world assets so that, that you have a riskless rate. And that's where the real contagion is going to come in when you have, when you have um, basically an immature market that doesn't really understand lending and borrowing, but is able to print money cheaply, that right. all of these lenders and borrowers are going to come in and go, give me a line of credit, which is already happening with MakerDAO. Like I've been at conferences where people are talking about getting lines of credit from MakerDAO. So this is, this is, this is where the industry is going to go. And you're right. It, it's a problem. Yeah, and of course, there's no current way to very elegantly hedge that risk, and that's precisely the point that you make about credit default swaps. I wanted to bring Marco back into this conversation. I know we could probably talk about these issues uh, for another hour, uh, but Marco, I believe, has some viewer questions from our audience. 
Uh, yes, I do have quite a few actually viewer questions that we'll, we'll, we'll get to in just a moment. But first, for those watching on the Real Vision website, thank you. If you haven't signed up there yet, check it out at realvision.com. That's the best way to access Real Vision crypto content. Our pro crypto members can enjoy videos like the newly released technical analysis episode by Peter Pinkasoff. Curious how to trade Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, or XRP? Check it out at realvision.com. And if you're watching on YouTube, please like and subscribe and hit the notification bell. Hey, everyone. We're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. All right, so onto some of these viewer questions, a lot of them coming from YouTube. So the first one here from Name on YouTube, for how long does RDX Works have funding for operating operating costs? So I guess for how long does RDX have funding for operating costs? Yeah, I mean, the uh, RDX Works is the development company behind um, the public ledger um, software. Um, and then uh, Radix Tokens Jersey is the entity that is essentially the regulated entity for the issuance of the token. It's Radix Tokens Jersey, which is the entity that um, is responsible for the long-term funding of software development and stuff like that. Um, but we haven't released a public uh, any any public statements about uh, the 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 road the long-term funding of of that entity, apart from the fact that the public reserves of of XRD are known. You know when uh, the the public ledger was instantiated. Instantiated, uh, Radix Tokens Jersey received 3.6 billion tokens, which is a market value of uh, around $200 million at the moment. And then the, the same uh, person asked a follow-up question. Uh, do, do they rely on selling XRD in order to fund operating costs or employee salaries? Yeah, again, we don't comment on, on specifics like that. Copy that. Uh, so another one from, oh, I guess it's from name as well. Why does RDX Works Foundation currently hold 50% of the total supply? Doesn't it represent a security issue for the network? How decentralized is Radix really? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question as well. So um, some of those tokens are what we call the stable coin reserve. So one of the like long-term um, perspectives of Radix was that stable coins are incredibly important for public ledgers to be successful. Um, and we created a reserve called uh, the stablecoin reserve, which is 2.4 billion. That's locked away and we don't have any access to it unless we decide to launch a, a stable coin that's integrated into the Radix ledger. So that's actually a quite a large percentage of the total holdings that uh, we will burn if the if the network doesn't release a stable coin. And if it does, then it becomes part of essentially a decentralized protocol that manages it. So there is a certain degree of trust for that period whilst we hold those tokens. Um, but I think that the, uh, the risk reward ratio of being able to launch something is systemically important on a network um, and making sure that if we don't, we burn them. I, I, I think that in the early stages of building a public ledger, you have to take some risks around what your um, possible future uh, build roadmap looks like versus how many tokens you hold because th th there's a payoff ratio between those two things. And there's still a lot to deliver for addicts. Absolutely. So, I, I mean, I, I understand that. Like, you guys are working towards that. And as time goes on, you guys are working towards becoming more decentralized is, is the way that I would um, take that answer. Yes, that, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, the uh, we have specific targets for um, token holdings that we want to be below, you know, uh, thresholds that everyone would be like, yeah, that sounds fair. Um, and, you know, once we release Babylon, there's still a lot of work to do um, beyond that um, around Xi'an, which is the next release be uh, beyond that. So the, it, it's very much a work in progress. And I think that these kind of questions become a lot more fair when the network, when the major work of the network has been completed and you're now at a state where you're like, this is actually just a public good. And we're moving from a development phase to yeah. a to a maintenance phase where yeah. the, you're not really you're not adding massive features. You're tweaking and, and improving for the underlying stakeholders of the network. And it's not there yet. So like these kind of things are necessary to be able to get the network fully in motion. This next question here comes from Chris Randall on YouTube, and this one's actually for Ash. It's a Genesis question. Uh, he asks, 
Uh, any forecast on the valuation of convertible preferred stock to be issued by DCG? Last uh, was seven billion valuation in November 2021. Uh, Chris, definitely no forecast for me. Uh, I'm not a financial analyst and I haven't had a time to uh, really read into it, but let me just give you a little bit of context here. Uh, DCG would exchange its existing $1.1 billion note due in 2032 for convertible preferred stock to be issued by DCG. This is per the press release uh, as part of chapter uh, the, of the Genesis is a chapter 11 plan. Uh, because it's only been announced, we'll probably have to wait a little longer, I think, to see some of the pricing forecasts. I'm generally not going to do pricing forecasts. In fact, I'm probably never going to do pricing forecasts. But what I would love to have uh, is someone on the show uh, who has the uh, who has the time and the bandwidth and the background uh, to do that. And I would love to interview someone uh, to talk about that pricing forecast. Uh, so it's going to be interesting, and we're going to have to just uh, wait and see what comes out next. But that, it's a great question, uh, Chris, and I'd love to have someone on the show to talk about it. Yeah, wait and see and no pricing forecast until we have uh, somebody to talk about it. Well, this next question comes from Lewis and Co on YouTube. This is for Piers. I want to ask if Piers, I want to ask Piers if Radix is going to launch a native stablecoin algorithmic or collateralized at Babylon la launch. This is super, this isn't a super important topic in my opinion for a successful launch is what he says. Is it is or is not a super important topic? That's what he's saying. This is a, this it, it is, is yeah. a super important topic. Yeah. So absolutely not is the answer. Um, and the reason being is that everything that we do in Radix is 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 staged for uh, the combination a combination of security and usability. And like each layer is its own next level of foundation. So you can't you can't build the programmability layer until you have the execute the execution and consensus layer we built that first 18 months later we then release uh, the programmability layer and the user experience layer now you can't build a really great intrinsic um, application like a stablecoin without having the programmability layer in the user experience layer, but that only comes at Babylon. And it's certainly not something that we would rush out, especially because stablecoins at the, at the heart of any ledger, like we've seen with Terra, like we've seen with a number of other um, sort of like early stablecoins that didn't do so well, that's a really big risk systemically for the system. And it's something that we would want to take a lot of time and discussion around. And I don't think it's I don't think it's necessary for a public ledger to be successful in the early days. It's one of those things that may mean that you can grow a public ledger more quickly later because it, you have an easier way of being able to localize. But this isn't something that we're that we're uh, exploring for Babylon, and it's not anything that we're putting a timeline on. Um, the the only thing I'll say on this is we've given ourselves ten years to work out whether or not. This is something we will do, and that we're now three years into that ten-year period. And if if we decide to not do it um, uh, because it doesn't look like a good risk reward, then we'll burn the stablecoin reserve, and the uh, total supply will reduce. Interesting. Uh, so this next question, also for you, Piers, is from Porcival on YouTube. Is there a plan for increasing the decentralization of XRD holder distribution that's been made available for the public to see? Say that again. He says, is there a plan for increasing the decentralization of XRD holder distribution that's been made available for the public to see? Yeah, I think this is this is this is all um, related to the same questions around like how much tokens the foundation has. And 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 the answer is, yes, it will be decentralized over time. Of course, it will be. Um, and each time we release a new piece of technology, it gives us more ways in which we can um, use those tokens to increase the user base, increase the d developer base, increase the dApps, make sure that it's actually being built for the benefit of the public ledger and that we're encouraging economic activity on the public ledger. Like these battles are going to be very long and very difficult for a public ledger to be successful. And I think a lot of people, when looking at uh, token supplies, often are incredibly short term because because the, because why would you not be if you're holding tokens and you want the token to make a return for you as quickly as possible? These are the things that feel like the easiest levers to pull in the same way that you see um, people often asking for companies to return cash to investors, right? Like ultimately, the, the 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 success of these public ledgers rely on the economic success of the network of the people that are building on top of it and that isn't a function 
of um, passive token holders. That's a function of active participation and making sure that that happens. Yeah. Um, and there's one more final question here from PBG. He says, uh, or the, the person says, one subject you guys have not covered is the fact that you can't even get onto Radix network without KYC, which is know your customer. Uh, Piers, do you have any comments on that? Uh, well, it's not true. So the uh, the public ledger token is available on many exchanges uh, and uh, you can move the token onto the ledger or buy the token directly or have it sent to you. There is no, the, the network itself is entirely permissionless. Um, there is KYC AML on uh, using a bridging service between the Radix ledger and the and uh, the Ethereum ledger because there's no smart contracts on Radix. So you actually have to have someone take tokens in one side and then send them to you in the other. And because it's being done from Jersey, we have to abide by the rules of that jurisdiction. But um, if you want to get tokens directly from someone, there's nothing stopping you do that. It's a completely permissionless uh, decentralized ledger. So directly from someone, meaning I guess that you know peer to peer, essentially peer to peer, or you know on a on on a uh, you can buy it off Aussie Swap, or you can buy it off Caviar. Both of these are uh, decentralized net, uh, um, exchanges that are already operating, um, and you can also buy it from uh, various exchanges as well. Copy that. Well, this is a great show, guys. Uh, I, I'd like to get your final thoughts and key takeaways. I mean, I, I would like to start too. I, one of the interesting things was that you mentioned, Piers, that just really stood out to me was this idea of human readable uh, transaction. I, I believe that the human readable transaction list where right. you can, you know, because when you're signing a lot of this stuff on MetaMask, it's, sometimes you have no idea what you're doing. And essentially the way that I understood it was that it would give you like a, a kind of essentially a, a, a summary or a description of what actually is happening. So that way you're making sure that you're making a good transaction. Right. Um, that, was, that was one of the takeaways that I had. Piers, I don't know if you have any takeaways you'd like to leave with our audience. Yeah, I think the main thing is like the thing that the crypto industry needs to do is humanized crypto like right now it is for the geeks and the hardcore anarchists and it's not really for you you know our friends family and colleagues it is it, and and our goal if we want to make this mainstream if we want web3 and DeFi to be in every single person's pocket and to be a key part of how they manage their wealth and their identity and their and and their access to things like the metaverse you have to humanize it. You have to make the experience itself magically delicious in the same way that people in the Web2 world work on doing that. And with Radix's tools, you can finally, that's finally possible. With the Radix user experience, with the Radix wallet, with the Radix programming stack, it is completely different. And it is now possible to make insanely great user and developer experiences, which we believe will lead to insanely great dApps and uh, applications. Taking it mainstream through user experience. I completely agree with that. Ash, what about you? Uh, final thoughts, key takeaways for our viewers. Insanely great. There's a Steve Jobsism there. Uh, and I think it's probably a, a relevant metaphor because the reality is uh, to date that we have not seen the kind of adoption uh, in the DeFi space that we've seen with the the kinds of products uh, that uh, that Steve Jobs made so famous at Apple, the idea of consumer products that people felt very comfortable with, that they enjoyed to touch, uh, that they enjoyed to interact with, that they they had a kind of connection to. Uh, that's something that is uh, still a challenge for the space and something that, um, you know, peers and other smart people are working toward attempting to solve. And I, I think it it really is, uh, you know, in many ways, this 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 whole show uh, is emblematic of the kinds of conversations that are happening in this space. Look, I, I think uh, there are there's a broad consensus. That, well, let me not attribute it to anyone external. Let me just say it myself. Uh, I think that it's almost a certainty that we're going to see these types uh, of technologies, specifically technologies that are increasingly decentralized, becoming a larger part of the financial services ecosystem, uh, in part of commerce, in part. Uh, of the uh, a part of the of the uh, way we interact with social media, Web three, decentralized finance, DeFi. This is something that is definitely coming. Look, we're we're uh, not endorsing Radix. We don't endorse any particular protocol or token on this show. But these kinds of conversations, the conversation that you heard here today, uh, is really exploring the issue that we're going to be hearing about uh, on some of our, uh, our 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 other financial services uh, networks out there uh, that uh, you can get on your cable television. Uh, but you're going to be hearing about them there, maybe in one, maybe in three, maybe in five years. We're having 
having this conversation today on Real Vision because these are the topics uh, that are going to matter. These are the topics that are going to be uh, part and parcel of this conversation of how DeFi becomes mainstream, how DeFi becomes uh, something that is integrated into our daily lives. Uh, look, uh, we don't know how long it's going to take. Uh, and the challenge with this, as we talked about earlier, the challenge always with price is that, you know, there are these periods of uh, irrational euphoria and then uh, un unbearable depression uh, in terms of the way markets look at this. Uh, but, you know, I don't focus on price a great deal. You know, we talk about the price action, obviously, because it matters to people. But to me, uh, just speaking again for myself, the most important thing is having these conversations that explore these ideas uh, that are going to be the infrastructure, the architecture of the new decentralized financial services system that I believe is going to be coming to the world. It's just incredibly exciting. Uh, and I really enjoyed the conversation today uh, with peers and uh, a pleasure to do this again with you, Marco. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to do this with you. And I I think that you sum that up really perfectly. This is something that, you know, here, a lot of us at Real Vision, I would say all of us at Real Vision believe is a, is a secular trend that it's not just the normal business cycle. It's a, it's we're we're going towards something uh, much greater than that. And it's it's becoming integrated in so many parts of our, our daily lives. Anyways, with, with that said, I, I want to say, you know, to Piers, thank you first for coming onto the show. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to uh, get to speak with both of you. Yeah, we'll have to have you back on to up update us on Radix, uh, you know, later on this year when we can. We'd love to. Thank you. Anyways, for those uh, the, for the viewers watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell. That way you will always stay up to date with the latest crypto news and analysis. If you're not a Real Vision crypto subscriber yet, don't forget it's free. Head over to realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's it for today's show. We'll be back tomorrow. Evan McMullen from Disco will join us live. See you at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, 5 p.m. London time, live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing.